tonight, if you will, grab your Bible, turn with me to Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 and move into chapter 15 tonight. In addition to that, if you have your Mark journal and wish to follow along, I would invite you to find your way to the extra notes page. They are a couple pages past today's date, which... Again, according to my watch, is October the 16th, so flip a couple pages past that date. You'll have a page full of blank lines. Feel free to put notes in there if you wish. Tonight, I want to sort of invite you to wrestle with and consider this one question. Here's the question. Are you ready? What kind of Jesus do you want? If you could choose to follow a Jesus, what kind of Jesus would you follow? Uh, And you say, well, that's a silly question. But is it a silly question? Uh, You know, one of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago is this this growing challenge where there are things about God that we like. We love the, the God of love. We love the God of mercy. We love the God of grace, but don't you dare give me a God who demands righteousness. Don't you dare give me a God who actually will hold me account to the way I behave. And so the question is, family, what kind of Jesus do we want? And I would suggest to you that is actually the question that is being presented throughout the trial of Jesus Christ and the text that we read tonight. Now, what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of the historic background, and then we're going to read the passage. I think as we look at some of the history and what's going on around it, it may make better sense for the text itself. So let me sort of walk through some of the judicial system of the ancient Hebrew people, because as we do, you'll see things perhaps that that otherwise we might miss. The Hebrews valued justice. They prided themselves in having a very thoughtful, justice-oriented judicial system. In fact, it was organized to ensure that uh, some did not receive favorable verdicts while others did not, that the rich, the powerful, would not get away with things while the poor are abused and mistreated. They were very concerned with this. Now, the ancient system or their, uh, their, their, their system was really based on some Old Testament laws. By the way, did you know, and most of you do, that much of the American judicial system is built off of laws that originate back in the Old Testament, that then were adopted through the early Christian years, and then we see this Judeo-Christian value set and the way that we organize. So we have actually been beneficiaries of what we're going to look at tonight. But the entire Jewish judicial system had its roots back in the Old Testament. And there was one passage in particular, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. It's Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's all right. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in chapter 16, there's one little passage, and it was the source from which much of their system stemmed. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 
I'll flip there as well. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 through 20. Notice what it says. This is the Lord speaking to Israel through Moses, the leader of Israel at the time. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Notice this. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live. And and please hear this. So you may live. Well, that's going to come into play what we talk about here in just a few minutes. So you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So... Uh, The way it worked is God established judges in every town. Each of these judges would sit, just so we have a little more privacy here, they would sit in judgment uh, and they would receive cases. People would come to them. But it wouldn't just be one judge per town. Rather, what the Israelites began to do is they built up a system of Uh, courts, if you will. In every town, they would establish what was called, and you'll be familiar with this term, a Sanhedrin. Now, one of my dear friends who is far better at language than me, he says, nope, that's not how you say it. It's Sanhedron. Fine. Whatever it is, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, but a Sanhedrin. It was led by or organized by people who were scribes, who were maybe Pharisees, who were teachers, who had some knowledge of the laws of God. And there would sit on this Sanhedrin in every town 23 men, righteous men, who would judge. It was always an odd number, so there could never be a hung verdict or hung jury, so to speak. They would hear, they would judge, they would cast judgment then, or the verdict. And then if you could not get justice in your local Sanhedrin, or if it was too difficult of a case, they would send your case to the great Sanhedrin in the capital city of Jerusalem. At the great Sanhedrin, there were not 23, there were 70 men made up of the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priests, 70 of them, and the one high priest, 71, at the great Sanhedrin. Now, in the ancient world, in the Jewish system, they had some guarantees. Four, in fact. If you were a Hebrew person and you went to court, you had four guarantees. I'm just going to rattle these off. These will make sense in light of what we see. Number one, you were guaranteed to have a public trial public so that what is done cannot be done in secret, you would have a surety or assurance that you would get a fair trial. So it had to be public. Number two, it had, you, would, you were guaranteed to receive a public defender. You didn't have to defend yourself. Someone would help you. You were guaranteed to be convicted only if there was at least two or three witnesses who had agreeing testimony. So let's say you're on trial for murder and there's one witness who says, I saw you do it. Only one witness, you'd go free. Had to be two or more, guaranteed. And the fourth guarantee was that you would receive, if it was a capital offense, meaning the death penalty was possible, there was always a day 
between the day that the sentence was announced, you are guilty, we are now going to kill you, there was always a day between the verdict and the execution, and they called this a day of grace, effectively. And the purpose was to allow time for additional witnesses or information to come forward so that if you were innocent, you had a day where you might be able to change the verdict. And during that day, those on the Sanhedrin, those who were the judges, were required, hear this now, by law, to spend that day of grace fasting and praying because fasting is a way of humbling yourself to God, saying, God, you are sovereign, you are big, I need your wisdom, and if I am wrong, show it to me. Do you see how there were guarantees to at least hopefully ensure justice for all? This was the guarantees. Now, the problem was in Jesus' trial, those were not given to him, were they? And we're going to read through it here in just a moment. In fact, there were five things, or excuse me, six things that Jesus was denied at his trial. Number one, he was denied an arraignment before the trial. Arraignment is where the charges are given. Jesus, we charge you with X crime. Okay, we'll have trial on such and such date to see if this is true. He had no arraignment, did he? Number two, Jesus did not receive a trial during day, but rather it was a trial at night. In other words, it was in secret. It was illegal. Did you know it was illegal to have a trial at night in the Jewish law? Number three, it was done in secret. Again, no public hearing, no help. In fact, what we're going to see is the place that they were required or took people for their trial. was a, It was literally called the place of hewn stone. It was a designated spot where you would have your trial. They don't take him there. They take him to the high priest's personal residence in the middle of the night where no one would know where they were or what was going on. He was denied a fair trial. It was a secret trial. Number four, by law, you were not allowed to have a trial on the Sabbath day, on a Jewish holy day, or even on the night before a Jewish holy day. Now, real quick, what holy day did they just celebrate when they arrested Jesus Christ? Passover. So they broke the law on when they could do it. And number six, as we said before, before condemning a man, the judges were required to fast for one day, and yet from time of trial until Jesus' execution is less than 16 hours. Jesus was denied every right required by law, by supposedly lawful men. Now, let me give you a few things here, and again, we're going to get into the text, but I want to give you six phases. And the reason I do this is because not all of the Gospels give us every portion of Jesus' trial. And I'd like to give you a context so you see where things fit so it hopefully makes better sense. Now, the very first three phases are what we might consider religious phases. These are the ones or the portion of Jesus' trial that took place with the Jews, the Hebrew people. Four through six were the portions of his trial that were done under Roman rule and because of the requirements of the Roman law. So, one through three. Number one, Jesus, the first phase, he was tried at a man named Annas' house. We'll talk about that in just one second. Number two, um, he was then sent to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. Number three, 
the council, the rest of the folk, condemn Jesus. Condemn. We'll edit that out. All right, so you have these three sections first. Then you have four through six. He is taken before a man named Pilate. He was the governor of Judea. He was under Roman authority. He was the Roman leader of the time. We'll read about him in just a few minutes. Then there's a section that we do not have in Mark's account, but Pilate, wishing to pass the buck, sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. Herod was affectionately known as King Herod. Herod, not wanting to have to make the judgment either, sends Jesus back to Pilate, which we also have in Mark's account as well. Now, this is the outline. Let's kind of walk through this real quick because I want you to get context. Who is Annas? Annas was formerly the high priest. Now, when Jesus is put on trial, he is no longer the high priest. In fact, he's not been high priest for some time. So you've got to ask the question, why did they take Jesus to the former high priest's house first? It's because Annas was super powerful and influential. He had really built up the power of the priests. To be a priest, you had to be in direct descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And he was. He served as high priest. This is all according to Josephus, one of the early uh, Hebrew historians. In fact, most of our information about Annas comes from Josephus. He tells us that Annas served as high priest for approximately nine years. But because he was so powerful, Rome got worried and said, you know, let's not deal with this guy anymore. They deposed him. So he said, no problem. I don't have to be high priest. I got five sons. So one son after the other son after the other son, he ends up passing on the reins. Uh, They don't rule very well. They don't know how to juggle the political and the religious, the Romans and the Jews. And so they all kind of fall out of favor pretty fast until finally Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest at this point, and he serves for about 18 years. Now, here's what's interesting. The reason Annas was as powerful as he was was because he, at this point, had strengthened and found ways to make money for the priestly group. He was the one who negotiated the rates for the buying and selling of animals for sacrifice in the temple. He was the one who worked out the system and the financial benefits. And when Jesus shows up and starts flipping over money tables and starts shooing people out, who do you think got ticked off? Annas. So they bring Jesus to Annas, and Annas begins to question him. This is not in Mark's account, but he begins to question him. And Jesus, if you want to go and look at the account later, Jesus answers lawfully and says, Look, everything I've ever done is on the record in public. What do you want from me? And then someone strikes Jesus and says, How dare you speak that way to God's high priest? And Jesus says, effectively, I'm only telling the truth, and all I want is a legal trial, but you won't even give me that. So Annas goes, well, there ain't nothing I can do, basically. Let's send him off to Caiaphas. So he now goes to Caiaphas' house. This is where we pick up in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. They took Jesus. This is after they left the garden. They take him to Annas' house, and now they take him to the high priest. Now, it doesn't tell you it's Caiaphas, but that's who this is. 
They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. That's the Sanhedrin. They come together as well. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. By the way, just as a side note, notice this. There Peter sat with whom? Say that again real loud. With the guards. We didn't talk about this Sunday, but I did want to mention it tonight. Isn't it interesting that Peter likes Jesus, but he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus? Following Jesus closely when it's convenient, but at a distance when it's dangerous. Something I noticed in preparation for tonight is how, how easy it is that if I or you follow Jesus at a distance before long, we will be sitting with people who are openly opposed to and assaulting Jesus because the guards are the ones who abuse Jesus so terribly in just a few hours. Just a good metric is to say, what kind of company do I keep? And that's a val- that is a means of seeing how closely am I following Christ. Now notice what happens. The chief priest, verse 55, and the whole Sanhedrin, this is the great Sanhedrin, were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Now remember, they're required by the law to already have the evidence before the trial, but they're saying, we want to get rid of him. Can anyone bring some evidence since we've got him in custody? But they can't find any. And instead, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. You've got to have two who agree or more who agree, and they can't even agree. And then we're told, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. By the way, just to pause, how many of you Old Testament scholars remember the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the Ninth Commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We often sort of truncate that or shrink it down to just don't lie. This was more than lying. This is the idea of I am going to say something that is wrong or lying about you. So they're breaking one of the big ten in the process of trying to get rid of Jesus. So they make this claim. They say... Well, we heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. You say, what's the big deal on this one? Well, it was considered a capital offense, not just in the Hebrew culture, but in the larger Greco-Roman culture for anyone to destroy a sacred temple. That's where the gods live. You don't want your local god mad at you because someone destroyed your temple. And yet, so they say, well, let's, let's claim this of him. But even that doesn't work because it does not agree. Then the high priest, Caiaphas, stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. There's a confidence that Jesus is demonstrating He doesn't simply feel like he has to defend and he recognizes the futility of doing so. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the... Now notice these two words, blessed one. In your Bible, are the words blessed and one lowercase or uppercase? 
Okay, mine too. Here's why. The Hebrew people were terrified of using and misusing the proper name of God, Yahweh. I am, correct? And so they would often use euphemisms or other words that were to respond. To, to speak of God without saying his name. And so he is actually saying, are you, he's asking two questions. Are you Messiah, the chosen one of God, and are you the very son of this living God? And notice what Jesus says. I am. Quick question. Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord comes to Moses, says, You lead my people out. Moses says, well, okay, but if they ask, who is this God? What name shall I give them? And the Lord God says to Moses, I am. You understand, people often say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You understand, he claims it multiple times. He was not executed strictly for what he did, but for who he claimed to be. I am. And you will see the Son of Man. This is a reference to Daniel's account. The Son of Man, this majestic, deified character. And you will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, sitting at the right hand of the... And I love this. He's like, you can use euphemisms for God, so can I. Notice this. He's sitting next to the Mighty One. Is that lowercase or uppercase? talking about God again. And coming in the clouds of heaven, the high priest Caiaphas tore his clothes, a symbol of anger, of rage, of frustration. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, because none of the ones we had worked anyway. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, quick note here. He says Jesus blasphemed. According to the Old Testament, blasphemy was to curse God. Did anyone in here hear Jesus curse God? He can't even get his own laws straight. He claims something that is, in fact, not what Christ Jesus did. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. This is point three. They all condemned him. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Church, this would be like in a Supreme Court proceeding when judgment has been cast, if the judiciaries got off the bench and began to slap around and beat the one they have just condemned, it would be unheard of just as it was and should in our minds be unheard of to what they did to Christ. So we now leave the religious side. Now you say, why do they even go to the Romans? Well, here's why. They're under Roman rule. They do not have the authority to condemn a man to death and carry out the execution. They got to get a Roman leader to say, yep, we'll do it. So they take him to Pilate. He was something of a terror in the ancient world. Most people hated Pilate. But they thought, what we'll do is we will claim that this man is stirring up the people, that he is a revolutionary. He is against Rome. And we pick up this when in chapter 15 in verse 1, we're told that very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, real quick, it says early in the morning. This isn't simply to describe 
how quickly they came to their decision, but it also has a uh, cultural importance. The Romans, if you were a governor, you would start your day at sunrise, and by mid-morning, you were done for the day. So if you wanted someone to come before you, if you wanted to be seen, if you wanted to talk to this ruler, you had to get there early or you were out of luck until the next business day. So very early in the morning, they get Jesus there and notice the question he asks. It reflects what they have told Pilate. Are you, verse two, the king of the Jews? In other words, are you a revolutionary trying to rise up and depose Rome? Yes, it's as you say. The phrase there, by the way, is more a sarcastic, hey, if you say so. That's the way that Jesus, you can almost see him rolling his eyes like, look, this is a farce. We know how this is going to end. Let's just get on with it. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. So now, I want to kind of shift here. Notice what happens, and then we get to a choice. Now, I want to just sort of pause for a moment. I want you to reflect with me. What you have seen now is six phases of the trial of Jesus, and the question that we asked at the beginning that we'll come back to is, what kind of Jesus do you want? What Jesus are you after? There is a version of Jesus that I think would have gotten along just fine with these religious leaders. It would have been the Jesus who would have played their games, who would have affirmed the way they did business, who encouraged his followers to do what the religious leaders want. He could have been a political and religious mastermind. He could have been beloved by these people had he chosen to play their game, but because he would not be the Jesus they wanted, they were going to get rid of him. Here's the point. There is only one true Jesus, and we either accept him wholly or we have to get rid of him from our lives. He doesn't play games. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate's like, I don't want to deal with this. So he now says, okay, I got an idea. And in verse 6, we're told this. Now, it was custom at the feast, talking about Passover and of unleavened bread, that feast. It was custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Now, this was evidently just a uh, tradition that Pilate himself had initiated. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Referring to Jesus knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate Reese Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? And This is a pagan governor who is looking at the religious folk going, Why? Even I can't see what the problem is here. How upside down must things be that he can't even see it? And he's going, what's wrong with you guys? Why? What has he done? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Here's what I want you to write down. There's a choice in all of this, and it comes in a very vivid way to this last moment. He says, you have a choice. You have Jesus or Barabbas. Now, what do we know about Barabbas from this text? What do you see? I'm going to invite you to kind of speak into this. What do you notice? Describe Barabbas. What do we know about him from the text? He is a murderer. Let's just kind of put this up here. So you got a murderer. What else do you see? An insurrectionist. Now, I don't know how to spell that without looking at my Bible, so I'll just put the word rebel. How's that? Okay. He was a rebel. Now, Against whom was he rebelling? So not only was he a rebel, but his whole goal was to overthrow. I seem to remember that there were a lot of folk who kind of wished Jesus would do this. Oh, if he just come in and separate us from the boot heel of Rome. Oh, that's the Jesus we want. That's the Jesus we really need. Now, one other thing we know, but it's not from this text. It's rather in Matthew's account, Matthew 27, verse 16. We are told that Barabbas is not actually this man's first name. It's his last name. His first name, if we go to that passage, in which case we got the time, why don't you flip over with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 and verse 16. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. If I can't get you to do it on Sundays, I'll get you to do it in here. So we're good. (laughs) Verse 16, notice it says this. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. You say, wait a minute. Hold on. Where's the rest of this? And actually, I'm asking the same question here. Hold on. Where's the rest of this? Does anyone else have something else on there? Oh, what's that? I'm sorry. His name was Jesus Barabbas. Hold on. So the choice, Jesus or Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas is his last name. Now, this is something for those of you who like language. Stick with me. If you don't like language, go to sleep. I'll be back with you in 30 seconds. But Barabbas is actually, it means son of Bar, the prefix bar, means son of. So, for instance, in the book of Acts, we're told of a man named Barnabas. Do you remember what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. Barnabas. Now, you will be able to guess what son of he is if you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Bar Abba. His last name is literally Son of the Father. Lowercase f. Okay, it's almost as though God planned all this to be more than just, you know, 
what you see, but there's so much more to this. So what you get is you have Jesus bar Joseph, the son of Joseph, or Jesus the Nazarene, or as Pilate calls him, Jesus the king of the Jews, or do you want Jesus, son of the little father, the earthly version? And here's the question that he presents, and the one that I've just been thinking about as a follower of Jesus, because you understand, Jesus was put on trial in around AD 30, but he is put on trial every day of the year by all those we see and even ourselves, because every day we have the choice, who will I elevate and who will I denigrate? What Jesus do I want? Do I want this Jesus, the one who was innocent, the one who won't fight the wars. I want him to, though. What about the Jesus that doesn't overthrow the people that I'm against? The Jesus who is more interested in the kingdom of God, the spiritual, than giving me all that I want and all that I need. Have you ever seen someone who wants a Jesus who they can sort of design, sort of a designer Jesus? And so we have this choice every day, don't we, family? What Jesus, what kind of Jesus do we want? Do we want the one that came from the true father or the one who is, uh, he'll do whatever it takes to get what he wants. He'll fight against the systems He'll overthrow the people I don't like. Which Jesus do you want? We are every day invited to ask this question. And here's the thing, as a follower of Jesus, every morning for that day, we're asked the question anew, aren't we? Today, will I choose Jesus the Christ or Jesus the son of the little father? Will I choose the one who says, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, forgive those who, who trespass against you, the one who went about, according to the book of Acts, doing good, is that the Jesus or is it the one who fights for his rights, who demands his way? I had a friend who used to say, watch out for the kind of Jesus you follow. Does your Jesus vote the way you always vote? Like the people you like? Hate the people you hate? Does the Jesus that you follow have your personality, your interests, your vices, your concerns, your all those things? And my friend made this point. He said, if you find that your Jesus looks just like you, chances are you're not following the real Jesus. Because if Jesus was already just like me, I would not need a savior for he would already be me. What choice will we choose? Now we know how they chose, so I want to kind of move away from their choice. This week, tomorrow, when the good Lord gives you great opportunities to choose his son or the counterfeit Jesus, the Jesus Barnabas. And let me give you a couple examples. Tomorrow morning, how many of you still uh, have to deal with rush hour traffic in Chattanooga? Anyone deal with rush hour traffic? Uh, all right, wrong crowd. Let me try this again here. <clears throat> 
How many of you still have to go to the grocery store and you get stuck behind someone who takes more than 15 items into the 15-item line? Is that preaching to anyone now? And there's that moment in your mind that you think, Dear Lord, this person is from the enemy, brought to tempt me and to try me, and you want to huff and you want to puff and you want to blow her cart down or his cart down, and you get angry and you frustrated. In that moment, as silly as it sounds, you have a moment to choose which Jesus will you choose and which one will you allow to rule you in that moment. And I know the one I want. It's the one that pulls out his sword and says, Out of the way! But the one that laid down his life for me says, Joshua, you laid down your life and you show grace to people who do not deserve it. For I did not simply wait for you in a checkout line. I died for you on a cross. Okay, so this week when you're dealing with people in the church who we might define as EGR people. You know what an EGR Christian is? It's an extra grace required Christian. You know the kind of people I'm talking about. And by the way, if you don't know any extra grace required Christians, it's because you are the extra grace required Christian for everyone else. But when there's that moment that you deal with someone who's difficult in the church, maybe they want something that you don't want or they're not thoughtful or they're this or they're that, there's going to be a moment which, Jesus, will you choose? Will it be the one who says, this is my body. I love my body. This is my bride. I died for her. I washed her. I cleansed her. I forgive her. I am gracious to her. Or are we going to choose the Jesus that says it's my way or the highway and if I don't like what you do, I'm going to find a new place. What Jesus will we choose, family? And I think about this week when we're invited into messy situations. I love what Katrina does. And obviously what she and Sherry and others are helping out with Cry for the Broken. It's one of those things where they're going into the the obviously dark corners of our culture, helping the women in the area who need hope and light. And I love that, but here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to just assume that that is what it means only to go into the dark places of our culture. Some of you have workplaces or you have relatives or you have other environments that are just as dark, but they are culturally acceptable darknesses. And in those moments, will you step out and speak the good name of Jesus Christ, not concerned with what might be said back like Peter was when he stood at a distance, but will we choose the Jesus who did not hide, but he stepped forward because he knew what he had to give was life, and if he did not, we would all die. What Jesus will you choose this week? And here's what I'm going to work on, and I'm going to ask you to do the same. I want you to consider tonight before you go to bed, I would invite you even to ask the Lord before you fall asleep, say, Dear Jesus, thank you for coming. Would you please make yourself so real to me that I can never deny the real you again. And tomorrow morning before your feet hit the floor, before your knees hit the floor, whatever way you got to get out of bed, You say, dear Jesus, today I choose you and help me, help me, help me in the moments where it matters to choose the real you for you are worth it and because you chose me. Because he did, didn't he?
That's the good news from this very bad moment in the life of Jesus. We get to choose the one who chose us. Why don't we pray together? Oh God, I thank you that you came, you lived, you willfully laid down your life, you died, and you rose. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, you will be on trial again and we will have opportunity to either choose you or not. I pray that unlike those who unjustly accused you of wrongdoing and those who did not want you, I pray that we will be honest enough to say you are where life is found and that we will choose the real Jesus tomorrow and on Friday we'll choose the real Jesus and on Saturday the real Jesus and on Sunday and that we will choose you all the way through eternity for you chose us. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.